Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and what a week it's been since we've last been together. Election Day turned into Election Week as the country dialed into red, white, and blue maps as the results of the election came in hour by hour and then day by day. If you, like many of me and my friends, uh, you were either Team King or Team Kornacki, depending on which Energizer Bunny sleep-deprived boardmaster you enjoyed more, John King on CNN or Steve Kornacki on MSNBC. Uh, those are two of cable news' most popular touchscreen savants. You know, Bill, Bill Hemmer at Fox News, he, he's a great journalist, but he's not quite, if you ask me, in goat contention for board yet. I mention all of that to just take take a moment to recognize that every four years we have an election uh, and it is both in, in many ways uh, a difficult time uh, because the different views that Americans have come to the foreground as we cast our votes uh, for competing candidates, competing political parties, competing visions of the role of government in our lives, competing visions for the public square, uh, oftentimes even competing visions for culture. Uh, And yet it's also, as we talked about on last week's episode with the celebration of the centennial of the 19th Amendment, the right to vote, the right for your voice to be heard is a beautiful part of our democratic republic. Uh, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that we have inherited, uh, and uh, that we that we cherish the right to vote, uh, the right for everybody who is of legal voting age uh, to vote in the election. I mean, it's really a it's it's really a privilege that many people throughout the history, throughout the history of the world, and many of our neighbors around the world in countries that don't have safe, free, and fair elections, it's a privilege, and we ought to recognize that. But last week was also, it was crazy. It was crazy as the as the whole country waited to see what was going to happen. And we recorded this week's episode of Capital Conversation that we are bringing to you now, the week after the election. We recorded it on Friday morning, November 6th. And so at the time, on Friday morning, most networks and news organizations had not yet called the key remaining states, including Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. So I wanted to come in here at the start of this week's episode uh, just to make note of that timestamp since, uh, since you know, the, the news moves fast even in a world where Nevada's election results come in as slow as the R&B groove of Brian McKnight's Back at One. And if you don't know what I'm referencing, uh, check out a link in the show notes about all the of the fantastic Nevada memes uh, that that I was enjoying watching and sending uh, to my friends as we as we rated on the results. But because the news moves fast, on Saturday morning after we were already done recording this week's conversation, as more results came in, particularly from Pennsylvania, the Associated Press and most major media networks called the 2020 presidential election for former Vice President Joe Biden, who will soon be the 46th President of the United States. And uh, later that afternoon, ERLC President Russell Moore wrote and published a kind of piece he writes and publishes every four years when the American people speak at the ballot box. The piece is titled, Christians, Let's Pray for President-Elect Joe Biden. You can read it at russellmoore.com or at the link in our show notes. 
This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about a very important development and public policy issue out of the city of Philadelphia. And it's probably not what you think it is that we are talking about this first week of November in 2020. Uh there is a lot of news uh, that has been coming out of Philadelphia, obviously, with a uh, very, very close uh, presidential election that happened this week. But right after uh, the presidential election on uh, Tuesday night, which really, I guess we don't even have an election day anymore. It's more of an election week that we're all still in the middle of this Groundhog Day type situation. Uh, there were oral arguments before the United States Supreme Court, and we're going to be talking all about about that with our friend Lori Windham of the Beckett Fund. Lori Windham is senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, where she has represented clients on cutting-edge religious freedom issues since 2005. She has been a part of representing parties before the Supreme Court, including Beckett's victories in Hosanna Tabor, Hobby Lobby, and Little Sisters of the Poor. She is a graduate of Harvard Law School and earned her BA summa cum laude at Abilene Christian University. This week, for the first time in her career, she was before the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court in the case that we're going to talk about today, Fulton v. Philadelphia. She was there representing and on behalf of the foster moms Sharon L. Fulton and Tony Sims Bush and their agency, Catholic Social Services. Lori, thanks so much for joining us today. Jeff, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to get to talk about this case. I don't know what else is going on this week. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly right. Uh, Travis and Chelsea, thanks for uh, thanks for being here as well. I know uh, many of us in this, in this uh, you know, I, I usually say here in D.C., but let's be honest, across the country uh, have, have been of, of two minds throughout the week, the things that we knew we were going to be working on and then, uh, and then the elections. So, yeah, the uh, things distracting us from what we need to be working on. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Travis, Chelsea, I, I know you, like me, are very excited uh, to talk to Lori about the oral arguments and about this, about this really important case, because ultimately, yes, it's about religious freedom. Yes, it's about foster care and adoption agencies, but even more fundamentally at its core, it's about taking care of vulnerable kids who are in need of, of homes. So this is a huge passion of the ERLCs, and we're excited to talk with you, Lori, about this today. But I do just want to start out uh, by asking you, what is it like knowing that you are going to be arguing a case before the United States Supreme Court at 10 a.m. the morning after a presidential election? What was Tuesday night like for you? <laughs> it was the it was the strangest election night that I can remember, and that's saying something. Um, you know, I think I cannot remember probably since I was a teenager, ever going to bed before the election was called. I mean, of course, you had 2000, right, and everything going on there, but I was always staying up late to see what happened, and I knew this year I could not do that. So we were sitting there and uh, watching the results on TV, and my husband sitting next to me with his computer, like, checking other sources and giving me updates, and uh, I was just going over the last of my notes, and I said, okay, I've got to call it at 11. I've got to go to bed, and you know, I, I wasn't quite that good, but I, you know, pretty soon, pretty soon I did, <laughs> I did go ahead and get some sleep. And, you know, 
at least by that point, we knew that they were still counting and there weren't going to be any results. So I felt like, all right, now's the time. I just need to get some rest. I've got to go to big things in the morning. Yes. And big things you did. This was your first time arguing a case uh, before before the justices. Uh, walk us through what it was like walking into that experience. Uh, now, obviously, this is a unique time because the, the argument was... Uh, I guess it's appropriate to call it via conference conference call, but what what is that experience like as a lawyer? Um, I mean, I hope this isn't uh, uh, overdoing it, but that's the top of the of the legal profession. I mean, that that's amazing. Congratulations that this was your first case arguing before the Supreme Court. What was that like? Well, thank you, Jeff. It was, uh, you know, it was really exciting. And I'm just so excited to have the opportunity to do that. And this is, you know, people think about the argument and the, you know, couple of hours that you're before the court, but really it's months and months of preparation that go into that. And so we found out at the end of February that the Supreme Court was going to take this case. And then just a couple weeks later, the whole world turned upside down. And so, you know, here we are um, writing the briefs and preparing this case. Um, I did a fair amount of it from a pop chair in my garage while I was watching <laughs> my kids try and play and get some time outside um, during quarantine. And so, oh my goodness. Um, you know, it was just, we were all adjusting to doing this remotely and doing stuff over Zoom and uh, trying to find a way to get everything together and uh, run a Supreme Court case at the same time. So actually the Supreme Court, this was done over the telephone and the Supreme Court wanted us to have a landline and we didn't have a landline in our offices. We used VoIP like everybody else. And so a couple of awesome members of our team worked really hard to have Verizon come out and actually install a landline into our offices so that we could do the call. And I'm so glad they did. They didn't even tell me this until after the argument, but a couple of days before the argument, our VoIP system went down. Oh my goodness. So like the court was right. You really did need a <laughs> landline in 2020. <laughs> wow. wow. That is that is totally wild. And I'm I'm curious if maybe they learned a lesson from the arguments uh, earlier in this year uh, when they were over <laughs> conference line or or what, but that is that is really interesting. Yes, we also had a rule that nobody was allowed to use the office bathrooms until I was done with the <laughs> argument. <laughs> the infamous toilet, toilet flush. I'm glad oh, you mentioned man. that because that was that was amazing. Twitter, SCOTUS Twitter, uh, when that uh, when that happened was pretty great. That's amazing. And I just I just want to highlight the fact, Lori, that you were one of only a handful of women to argue before the Supreme Court this term, which I think is just really neat that you have that that honor. Well, thanks, Chelsea. It is, you know, I, I hope that we get to see more women uh, advocates and standing up to argue there because I know so many um, amazing female attorneys and uh, who are really at the top of their game. And so I hope we'll see more and more. So I want to um, jump in, Lori, and just ask you a little bit um, about what this case was. So can you can you set the stage for us? Um, we know that Catholic uh, Social Services has been serving in Philadelphia for over 200 years. Um, can you describe the work that they were doing in caring for um, children and families there? Yeah, so they've been doing an amazing ministry. This actually started out during an epidemic, yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia back in 1787, 1789. And they were realizing there were all these children who were orphaned and who were going to need homes. And so they would go out in their community and find homes for children and unite them with loving families. And they've continued doing that for 200 years. And of course, now 
Today, our system looks different. You know, you have children who are removed from their homes because of abuse or neglect, and yet um, the Catholic Church and Catholic Social Services are out there doing the same thing. They're going out and they're finding homes for these children. And amazing foster families like Sharon L. Fulton and Tony Sims Bush, they open their homes and welcome in these children and say, we will care for you. You know, if it's a few days, we're here for you. If it is years in the rest of our life, we are here for you. Both of them have adopted several of the children that originally came to them as foster children. Um, and we are having this discussion uh, the first week of November, which November is National Adoption Month. So um, how kind of the court to grant uh, oral arguments um, in November. So how long has the city um, been able to decide what foster agencies are able to serve and why um, Why is Philadelphia just now opposing Catholic social services? You know, Chelsea, that's a great question. Um over time, uh, although this is work that was pioneered by religious agencies, still done by religious agencies, over time we've seen the city get more and more involved. And that's something that is true across the country. Every state's a little bit different in how their system works, but what you see universally is government agencies who are involved when kids are removed from their homes, and then they depend on religious agencies to go out and find homes for those kids. Um, and so in 2018, the city of Philadelphia found out via a newspaper article that Catholic Social Services would not be able to provide a certification for a same-sex or an unmarried couple. Um, no same-sex couple had even approached them, but you know they said if anyone ever asked, they would help them find another agency who could give them that certification. They couldn't be the ones to do it. Uh, and so as a result, this became a huge issue in the city of Philadelphia. The city council passed a resolution saying it was discrimination under the guise of religious freedom. Um, the commissioner of human services called the head of CSS into her office and asked them to change their policy. And they said they couldn't. And so they said, OK, no more children are going to be placed with families who partner with you. And so that meant for women like Sharon L. Fulton, she'd been doing this for over 25 years. She had fostered over 40 children, and they wouldn't place any more foster kids in her home and wouldn't do that for any of the families who partner with CSS. And they kept that freeze in place for two years now. Uh, so I want to pick up on um, on that thread, and, and this is something that Justice Kavanaugh mentioned during the oral arguments, that in this case, there wasn't actually a real controversy in the sense that no nobody had actually been denied by Catholic Social Services. Talk a little bit about that dynamic and, uh, you know, in that moment during the oral argument. I think that's a really important fact of this case because it shows that this is a system that was actually working well. Um, there are a lot of different options for LGBTQ couples in Philadelphia. There are 30 agencies. Catholic Social Services is just one of them. There are 29 agencies who are happy to um, provide a certification for gay couples or for unmarried couples. And so, no same-sex couple had even approached Catholic Social Services asking for this certification, and yet the city of Philadelphia still decided that they could not have any more children placed with that agency. I think it shows that this was just completely unnecessary, and it also shows that there's a way for the system to work. There is a way for you to have diverse agencies coming together and serving their communities. You know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, it seemed that even Justice Breyer seemed to key on this point. And 
Uh, you know, I'm curious what you, you know, were you surprised uh, to see, you know, Justice Breyer sort of agree in some ways with with this issue and and what you, you know, and 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 maybe I'll just ask you a more general question. You know, what, you know, what were some of your other observations from the oral argument, things that surprised you, you know, things that, um, you know, you were encouraged by? Yeah, I was really encouraged that the court was very much aware of the facts and the reality on the ground of what's going on here. You know, we get up there and we're arguing about all of these legal issues and cases that, you know, listeners of home have never thought about before in their lives. But the justices were also interested in the human cost of this. And, you know, the fact that nobody had even uh, approached Catholic Social Services and also the real consequences on the ground for kids. And, you know, Justice Alito asked me about what the impact had been on the foster care system. And I think it's a really important point because there were 250 children who the city admitted they needed to move out of group facilities into family homes. And yet they refused to place them with Catholic Social Services. They are actually leaving empty beds. There are empty beds today that they will not fill because of this. And so I think it was really encouraging to me that the court um, seemed to be very much aware of the the human cost and human consequences of this case. Yeah. You know, and I, just to add a, a comment on this, I mean, this, this issue of religious freedom in the child welfare space is, you know, is an issue that ERLC has been working on for the last, I mean, we've been working on for a long time, but in a more focused way for the last three or four years. And you know, I think part of the issue is is what you just mentioned, Lori, which is people of faith make up the vast majority uh, of the families who serve in uh, in the foster care space. And you know, just you know, if if we if we look at an issue like religious liberty as you know as a principle that provides space for people who disagree about all kinds of things provides them access to the public square uh, to serve in a manner that's consistent with their beliefs. The child welfare space is a perfect example of why that's necessary. Because, you know, as you just said, there are, Chelsea, you would, you would know the answer, you know, off the, off the top of your head, the number of foster care, the number of foster kids who are eligible for adoption, who are waiting for adoption, you know, is in the- It's over 100,000. Right. It's over 100,000. We need more families. Uh, coming into this space, not less. And you know when you know when you have uh, when you have these sort of aggressive actions taken by uh, you know taken by government entities like the city of Phil- Philadelphia, all it does is serve to push people out of the system at a time when what we need is more and more and more families uh, you know being willing to participate. You know, I'm going to jump in here and and, and just uh, take a slight detour from the conversation about the oral argument to point out on this on this exact topic that that uh, you just mentioned, Travis, which is the foster care crisis and faith affirming agencies, uh, to highlight just an excellent excellent resource that Beckett has uh, on the case site. Uh, so if you uh, wherever you are listening uh, to this podcast, there in the show guide, uh, the show notes, we we have a variety of resources uh, that we'll be linking to from Beckett's Beckett site. But they have a particular particularly helpful one pager document about the foster care crisis. Which which goes through these statistics, not only about the problem 
and the problems that we have in in this space, but also the unique role that faith-based agencies play in finding homes for children and the unique role that they play in supporting families that are that are already fostering. And so uh, this this one page or just a few of the statistics uh, to to share with folks because I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting because it's one thing to know as you know as a Christian and as a member of a local church and to know what families are fostering, what families are adopting, to know that from a from you know the your own anecdote, personal anecdotes in your life. I think many of us have experienced that, but the statistics are are really quite stunning. So Here's a few. 82% of families in one study pointed to faith or church support as a factor that facilitates successful fostering. Uh, here's another one. Families recruited through their church or religious organizations foster nearly three years longer than other foster parents, which that to me is is really one of the most encouraging statistics when you think about the role that faith uh, not just personal faith, but the communities of faith. So churches and religious organizations like Catholic Social Services uh, or many evangelical uh, child welfare agencies like our friends in Birmingham at Lifeline. Um, these communities coming around these families that are selflessly serving kids who have been in really traumatic situations and need a safe, loving home. It's the community of faith uh, that comes around these families that really spurs them on to serve longer. Because while, you know, while three years uh, might not seem like a super long time to people, it's a really substantial chunk of time for the kids uh, that are being served by those families. And for anybody who is fostered can tell you every, you know, really as any parent could tell you every day, every week, <laughs> every year is long. And so the, the the support of a community is just huge and, and really, really crucial. So again, listeners, I would I would highly encourage, I mean, go check out all the resources on Beckett's case page because they're all great. But that one pager in particular is is just really, really helpful. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Christmas We Didn't Expect by David Mathis. 25 daily reflections for Advent will help you to adore Jesus, the one who came to save us and make our futures certain. Find out more about this book at thegoodbook.com. Okay, so Lori, I want to jump back into uh, questions about, about the oral argument. In ERLC's brief to the court, we wrote about and, and drew attention to Employment Division v. Smith. Uh, this is uh, a case that's that uh, uh, the opinion has been really important for religious liberty uh, jurisprudence. And uh, our brief called for that opinion to be reconsidered. Uh, it has had really devastating consequences uh, for religious liberty before before the court. So, um, you know, many many of our listeners might not be familiar with that case and what exactly it did. Uh, you referenced it in your opening argument to the court. So, can you can you briefly help folks understand why uh, employment v. Uh, Employment Division v. Smith uh, is is important for religious liberty jurisprudence and also uh, and also relevant here in Fulton. Yes, and thank you, and thank you so much for the amicus brief and for the support. It was uh, really uh, valuable to have those powerful arguments before the court. Employment Division v. Smith is a case from 1990 
where the court looked at a case of a couple of Native Americans who'd been fired because they used peyote in a religious ritual. It's now legal at the time it wasn't. And said, well, if there's a neutral across-the-board criminal law, then you have to follow it and you can be penalized. And the free exercise clause isn't going to protect you unless there's some evidence that that law was somehow um, directed at your religious exercise or that it's not really applied across the board. And this, you know, even though it arose in the context of Native Americans uh, and peyote, it's been used for all kinds of cases, including this one. And so the appeals court here actually said, that Smith, that case would be a dead letter if um, Catholic Social Services were to prevail. And they really relied heavily on this idea that Philadelphia was just applying across the board rules and that when you apply across the board rules, it's then okay to restrict religious exercise. Um, I think that's wrong. I don't think the rules were across the board and that we made a convincing case on that. Um, But I also think it's deeply problematic that You know, when you live in a society, as we've seen in the foster care space and happens in so many other spaces, too, where the government starts to regulate more and more and get involved more and more. What that means is every time they step out and regulate something new, the sphere of religious exercise is shrinking and the places where our Constitution is going to protect you uh, are getting smaller and smaller. And I think that's a really troubling precedent, a really troubling idea you heard in the argument that the justices were asking about things like religious hospitals. Well, you know, does this mean that you can come in and restrict what goes on at religious hospitals or compel them to be involved in things that violate their beliefs? And the other side didn't have a good answer for that. And I think it really shows that you think about hospitals, you think about schools, you think about services for the homeless, you think about private adoption, all these amazing things that churches are out there doing for their communities uh, can really be at risk if the court takes this too far. So I'm gonna I I, I want to sort of key off that, and I, I sort of understand the superstition about this. So so you know feel free to demur if uh, uh, if you don't want to answer this question. But you know I, I think as we were sort of talking about earlier, Justice Kagan, uh, Justice Breyer, you know both made you know made some you know comments that surprised me. I mean I I, I kind of expected this. Uh, this oral argument to be fairly divisive, just how, you know, because of how divisive this this uh, this issue is is unfortunately becoming. But talk to us a little bit about what you guys are thinking about in terms of the, the types of decisions that might come down and what the impact of those decisions might be, you know, both, you know, not just for Catholic social services in in Philly, but for all faith-based foster care around the country. And then, you know, some of the, you know, some of the issues that you just highlighted, you know, faith-based healthcare and so on. Uh, Well, Travis, the prediction business is a really bad business to be in in 2020. Uh, So I'm going to be careful here. You know, I'm, I'm really optimistic coming out of the argument. There are a couple different ways the court could go. Um, They could rule against us, which would be really troubling for the reasons you mentioned. You know, if they agree with the city here that when you're coming in and providing social services and partnering with the government to do that, that they can compel you to do things that violate your faith, um, that could be really dangerous for religious schools, for hospitals, for homeless shelters, and for all kinds of things we're doing. And we've even seen this case, the, the bad decision below, used to try and justify restricting religious exercise in places where they're not partnering with the government, like private adoption. Uh, there was an attempt to do that in New York. You know, So far, the, the courts have protected that agency. 
Um, but it's been a hard fought case. And I think that's, you know, a special concern, especially for those in the pro-life community, that they're out there working hard to provide options for moms and to provide options for families. And what does it mean if the government can come in and start to restrict those or take them away? And so that is, you know, that's the fear in this case, that it could be used to try and restrict religious exercise and not just in Philadelphia and not just for foster agencies, although that's bad enough. But I am optimistic. The court really did seem uh, to be concerned by what Philadelphia did here, especially the fact that nobody had even approached Catholic Social Services and especially the draconian response from the city to say, no more children placed with your agency. We're going to leave empty beds. Uh, it was really troubling. And so the court um, could say, well, Philadelphia's laws here weren't across the board. Their actions were targeted uh, or even not targeted, but their actions were not neutral toward religious exercise. Uh, and so therefore, we think you win under existing law. And I think the court may very well do that. If the court wants to, they could go further and say, you know what, we got it wrong in the Smith case. We think we can uh, have a law that's more protective of religious exercise. And so we'd like to go ahead and do that. And I thought it was interesting. You know, you heard, especially in the questions to the other side, it sounded like the justices were kind of struggling with this line drawing. Where exactly are we going to draw the lines here? And I think that that is, um, you know, a good reason why it's better just to say, you know what, Smith got it wrong. And the thing we need to focus on is, is there a religious exercise being prohibited? If there is, the government's got to have a really good reason for doing right. it. Well, we have been, you know, filing amicus briefs for many years, asking asking the high court to reconsider Smith. And uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the arguments our brief made in this case. We, we certainly hope, uh, we certainly hope the court uh, takes this opportunity to do so. I, I, I do want to ask, the composition of the court is a little different uh, now than than it was when you were beginning to uh, beginning your preparation uh, for for this oral argument. So I'm wondering if you could just reflect a little bit on that, and uh, you know, and then maybe share a highlight or two from uh, now Justice Barrett's questions and and commentary during the oral, oral argument. Yeah, it was. Um you know, when we started this case um, at the Supreme Court level, when the Supreme Court decided to take this case back in February, of course, things were looking different. And we were very sad to hear about the loss of Justice Ginsburg in September. And so, you know, we're doing this case and not knowing what the composition of the court's going to be. And yet, I don't think that really changed our approach to it at all. You know, I have thought all along that this is and should be a winning case because uh, the work that Catholic Social Services is doing is really powerful and the legal arguments here are really strong. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was exciting to be doing this the day after election day, you know, to be doing it with a, uh, a new justice on the bench who had just started uh, this past week, and she had really tough questions of both sides. And that's exactly the thing that you want to be prepared for. As we wrap up, I just want to put a fine point again. We've said this multiple times, but, um, you know, this this case really ultimately is about vulnerable children getting homes and the people that would suffer is vulnerable children, um, especially during, you know, COVID where there are more children entering into our foster care system. And, you know, unlike so many um, different groups, they don't have well-funded lobbyists going to Capitol Hill or the administration um, looking out for them. So I just 
yeah, wanted to highlight that a pluralistic, flourishing society ought to allow room for everyone to serve, including religious groups, so that we can take care of our most vulnerable. So, Lori, I just so appreciate the work that you have done for years and years and um, going to represent Catholic Social Services before the Supreme Court. And um, we're very grateful for you guys and for Beckett. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea. And we're so grateful for everything that you have been doing to advocate for religious freedom and make sure people understand the stakes here. So thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's conversation. There is a lot going on in the public square in these uh, really crazy and uh, and even historic days. For those of you who uh, left us a review on our podcast recently with Yuval Levin, his book, A Time to Build, should be in the mail to you now. Thanks so much for doing that. We'll, we'll try to do more of those. Uh, giveaways as it relates to uh, different books and resources that we think will be really helpful and meaningful for all of you who are listening. Thanks for rating and reviewing us. This really does help others find this resource that we think is uh, hopefully helpful to people as they're thinking about how to engage in the public square uh, from our Christian theological positions. So uh, if you enjoy this show, leave us a rating, leave us a review, uh, and send this episode to a friend who you think might enjoy it. Resources from this conversation, uh, as I mentioned earlier, are available in the show notes and, as always, at erlc.com. All of those resources are to equip you and your church. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.